Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find their opinions, content, expressed, disturbing, and objectionable. <laughs> They're like the designated hitter of rotations. It's like, dude, we have nobody in the lineup. Grab I Nick. So Don't share other friends. I have no other friends. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, uh, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine here at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and uh, looking, been looking forward to this particular interview for months, and um, you'll find out why, and uh, Nisarg Bakshi OMS2 will continue as our host. Yes, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi, and I've also been looking forward to this interview um, quite a bit. Uh, we're joined today with Dr. Pamela Weibel, who is pretty well known among the medical student and, and physician community um, for her work. Uh, she's given TED Talks. She gave a, a fantastic commencement speech at uh, Loyola University Medical School. Um, and uh, she's a family medicine practitioner in Oregon, the founder of the Ideal Medical Care Movement, and a leading voice for physician and medical student suicide. So thank you so much for uh, joining us, Dr. Weibel. We're excited to have you on. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us about what got you interested in medicine? So both my parents are physicians, and I used to go to work with them when I was a little kid because, as you know, physicians are workaholics, and um, so if I was going to have any time with my parents, it was going to be following them through the hospital or, like, the. my mom is a psychiatrist, so basically following her around the psych ward, and my dad's a medical examiner, pathologist, so, and he also taught medical school, and so basically I just followed him around the morgue and, and all these other sort of weird places that he liked to go as a physician, including he worked at a methadone clinic and before breathalyzers he actually was on call for the police department in Philadelphia they had to have a live doctor on site to sniff people's breath um, because before breathalyzer technology you had to do it like the old-fashioned way just um, he had to ask he says he he's asked over 13,000 um, uh, drivers DUI drivers to like burp and breathe in his face over the years <laughs> that seems like a really inaccurate way to test <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, they also have a little walk the line and do some of those neuro tests. But anyway, so I think I just saw medicine in its heyday when it was really relationship based and less focused on technology and equipment. You know what I mean? So I really got to just jive in with the human relationship and the drama and the fact that you could be there for somebody's, you know, milestone event in their life when they decide they're going to stop doing heroin or, you know, Get out of the morgue, you know, just basically. <laughs> Get out of the morgue? You've seen this happen? <laughs> basically, be with people for these, and you know, these milestone events and um, witness the human life cycle in a way that most children are shielded from this information um, because I guess most people want to give their kids sort of the white picket fence fantasy childhood, but my parents just let me see the real deal, like, from day one. So it made me like a really honest type of truth-seeking person that can't really get into like fiction and fantasies because real life is just so much more exciting, you know, than the make-believe. <laughs> um, but it didn't make it really easy after after work with my parents to play Barbies with my friends because I just thought it was stupid after being in the morgue. Like. <laughs> Well, as we alluded to at the beginning of the episode, um, so much of your work and, and what, what a lot of what you're known for uh, is providing a voice for physicians and medical students who take their own lives. Um, how did you find yourself in that role? 
Well, I was really depressed as a first year medical student, which I somehow thought at the time I was the only one that was hit so hard with this. But now over time, I've realized that it's not that uncommon for first year medical students to get really depressed and overwhelmed. Um, I sort of kept it together knowing that like at the end of the road, I could finally be the family doc that I always imagined and have my own clinic and all this stuff. And then after I finished my family medicine residency, after like six jobs in 10 years, I realized that my only value, it seemed, um, as a physician in the United States was to be a revenue generating robot for these corporations. And I thought that was just such a rude awakening considering I spent 24 years in preparation for being a real healer and helping people the way my mom and dad helped patients. And so I became suicidal myself because I felt like, wow, I just spent all this time and money and energy to prepare to be an amazing physician. And there is no employment opportunity that will allow me to bond with my patients emotionally or physically. They just want me for seven minute office visits, which is like a slap in the face for physicians and patients, right? So I became suicidal. And what ended up pulling me out of my suicidal thoughts is that I, I, I had an epiphany that if the doctors aren't happy and, the, happy and the patients aren't happy, maybe I should just invite the patients to design their ideal medical clinic. And so I literally, I know this sounds bizarre, but I jumped out of bed, led like nine town hall meetings over six weeks, invited my community to design their ideal medical clinic. I got 100 pages of written testimony, adopted 90% of what people really wanted, which basically all they want is me and my eye contact and answers to their medical problems, not that complicated, in sort of a cozy small office with no staff. So it was really cheap to do, and I was able to open one month later with no outside funding the first clinic in the country designed entirely by patients. Now, I know this is sort of like a roundabout way of talking about suicide, but that was the solution to my personal, like, night of the dark soul existential crisis as a physician is to get back to being a real physician. I think that mirrors why a lot of physicians are suicidal and medical students is they feel like their dreams are being stolen right in front of their eyes by just having so many exams. They lose track of, like, why they're really doing it. Um, they're more, you know, focused on their board scores than like what they really want to do with the degree. Uh, physicians, once they get out and have so much debt and, you know, kids and mortgage and family and they feel stuck in a job with a non-compete, you know, like people just get desperate and disillusioned when they feel like their dreams have been stolen from them. And so what happened, the reason why I got into this suicide thing, which I had never planned. I really thought I was the only suicidal physician in the country until about 2012. October 28, 2012 is when it hit me. I was at a memorial service for the third physician that we had lost to suicide in my small town in Oregon in just over a year. Okay. And while I was at his memorial service in the second row, I just started counting on my fingers how many doctors that I knew had died under either suspicious or suicidal circumstances. And I had like 10 that I identified in just a few minutes. So I realized right then and there, this is bigger than this one man's funeral, you know? And two of the people I counted were two men that I dated in medical school, fellow medical students that I loved in medical school who died by mysteriously, you know, at age 39 and 44, which later on, when this became an obsession, I tracked down their family members which is a little odd to like force yourself into a family conversation on why did your 
son or husband die. But I felt like I had a right to know because I love these people in medical school and I dated them. And I come to find out they both died of like accidental overdose. Okay. So basically I think that's kind of a ridiculous way of phrasing or, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's a suicide when you accidentally overdose with methadone by your bed at age 44. But anyway, the point is I lost both men I dated in med school and I've lost a ton of doctors in my life to suicide. And so on October 28th, 2012, I just happened to be teaching a physician retreat that night, which was completely unrelated to physician suicide. It was on business strategy and how to open your ideal clinic. And I opened this retreat with the question, how many of you have lost a colleague to suicide? Because I was just curious if I was the only oddball that just knew a bunch of suicide victims or did other people, right? And every single hand was raised in the room. Everyone's hand was raised, okay? Like right then and there, it was like a, I was hit in the head with like, I don't know, I felt like this was a calling for my life. Like I had to do something about this what seems like a covered up topic, right? I then did a follow-up question asking them how many had, had considered suicide themselves and all hands remained up, including mine, except for one nurse practitioner. So that's how I got involved in this. I started blogging about it and then like everyone and their grandmother wanted to call me to tell me about somebody they lost in medicine to suicide or some suicidal event they had as a resident. So I guess I just became like the, I don't know, the I, I'm just, the story, I, I'm collecting all these stories. I wrote a, I wrote a book, Physician Suicide Letters, where I published 52 chapters of, you know, I can talk for a while. I think I'll pause now to give you a chance. <laughs> I, I just want to point out something. I don't think that's bizarre that you got up and did tell me. I think you did market research is what you did. I think you went out and looked at your community and said, how do I meet the best needs I can of my community? And one thing that strikes me about that is we don't teach that in med school. We are teaching the corporatization of our med students, that it's just going to be an implied thing. You're going to go out, you're going to sign a contract with someone and be an RVU generator instead of teaching them how to be responsive to their community and their practice. And I, that doesn't strike me as bizarre at all. In fact, it strikes me as exactly how medicine was practiced 50, 60 years ago when someone came into community and looked over what they needed. And you just were just more methodical about it and getting like basically focus group surveys on what people really wanted. That You were listening to your patients. That's not bizarre. That's what we should be doing, right? Yeah, I mean, I went <laughs> graduated from like a family and community medicine residency program and community medicine, you know, that's, that's in the title of my degree. So I would think that I would have learned how to deliver community medicine, but apparently I feel like I had to learn on my own, you know, by just doing these town hall meetings, which I think everyone should be doing, you know, even if you're a first year medical student, you should start asking people, hey, what do you want from your doctor? Or even if you're sitting next to somebody, you know, in the airport, you know, boarding a plane, you know, hey, like if you could have anything at your next doctor's visit, what would you want? I'm a medical student and I just want to know, you know, I, I just think we need more excitement and to be more inclusive and engaged. Uh, we wonder, like, why our patients aren't engaged with us. Well, we haven't engaged them in the design of a clinic that would really serve them. We're holding them hostage, much like we're holding physicians to an antiquated, like, healthcare delivery model. Uh, one thing you mentioned, Dr. Weibel, in, in a TED Talk, and I, I thought you, you described it really well, um, was kind of the contradictory nature of this problem, right? You, you say it, it's an ultimate oxymoron of having a barefoot shoemaker, a starving chef, a suicidal physician, because physicians are charged with preserving life, right? So I guess my question is, what drives a physician 
to that sort of a decision? You know, what, what are the factors that, that you saw in, in all the people that wrote to you or contacted you? What sorts of things were driving them to that sort of mental uh, decline? Um, so often when they realize they have so much debt piled up, they feel trapped to continue in something that they feel like they did not really receive informed consent about what they were signing up for. You know, they had an image in their mind mm. that they find in their personal statement for which they were accepted to medical school. And then what I think is really odd is that what happens to that personal statement? It's just buried forever in a drawer, never to be looked at again by the applicant or the medical school. Shouldn't they at intervals, like every three, six months, or at least seasonally, once a year, get out that um, you know personal statement and say, hey, how are we doing getting you to your goal for which we accepted you into this medical school? Like, um, you know, because if they don't do that, I feel like it's a breach of contract for the medical school to not fulfill the promise that they made to you, that they could help you be the doctor that you defined quite clearly on your way in. You know what I mean? Instead, what they do is they obsess on board scores to the point where 75% of medical students and residents are on psych drugs and, and, and stimulants just to pass their tests, which I, I'm like shocked by this data, but a number of people have told me that it's true. And doing a paper on this right now and I mean if we're having to like drug up our medical students and residents just so they can pass through the medical training program there's got to be a systems issue going on right I mean these people wouldn't all be on psych drugs and Adderall if they were real estate agents or working at Walmart would they? <laughs> so I think um, you know sometimes they feel trapped they feel duped they feel feel like they're not being honored for their true potential as a healer. I think they're just exhausted, sleep deprivation. Um, you know, they, they just, they lose connection with their heart and soul. And that's part of a problem with like a patriarchal reductionist medical model. That's sort of like the machismo, our way or the highway. If you can't take it, just kill yourself, which some professors actually tell medical students, you know, like they give them instructions. It's like unreal to me, but you've, 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 you know, of this. Oh, yeah, there's actually a guy that owns a medical school on the East Coast who's actively telling medical students, go kill yourself. You're too stupid to be a doctor. And I'm trying to nice. get some video or audio footage of this to do something about it. But the students are too terrified to even give me anything because they don't want to get in trouble. And, ruin. The, you know, so it's like this weird situation where the victims are so victimized they can't even stand up for themselves any longer. So we need legal protection and we need somebody to do something about this besides me in Oregon. I mean, I'm happy to do what I can do, but wow, shouldn't we be policing our medical schools better and putting people into safe learning environments? It's not your school, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we, already have we already interviewed the dean of admissions. We're pretty clear that he's got a, a heart for students for the most part. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what can medical students do? Or rather, sorry, what can uh, medical schools do to protect their medical students? Um, what, what sorts of things do you think that you'd like to see in place? Well, I think like the solution for this is really simple. Like it's a lot more simple than dealing with like the Ebola crisis or any other sort of uh, major infectious disease. I mean, this is a public health crisis that we're losing so many medical students and physicians to suicide. But like, honestly, the solution is sort of like rereading that book, Everything I Learned in Kindergarten, you know, just be nice to people, share, you know, collaboration, teamwork. I mean, and not just saying it in a PowerPoint or sort of putting a wellness program on top of rampant human rights abuses in medical school and claiming that you're doing something or, you know, you've got to like really be walking the talk, like 
I, if I had a medical school, I would welcome medical students and um, take the pressure off and say, wow, you guys are amazing. You are the top of the top, the creme de la creme. And now that you're here, we are going to support you unconditionally. You know, I'm here for you. Here's my cell phone number. If you ever need anything, this is a family, your brothers and sisters, you know, not like a competitive environment where everyone is trading, you know, Adderall in the library. I don't know, like crazy stuff that goes on now. Like just make it more collaborative and, um, and loving, you know, loving. <laughs> we love you. We're glad you're here. You know, like it's okay to say that. Um, instead of, if you can't make it through, just kill yourself, you know? I mean, that's kind of the old welcome message to medical school. <laughs> yeah, um, have, have you seen these changes in, in, you know, in the last few years compared to, you know, uh, way back when, you know, maybe these sorts of, ple you know, if you can't do it, kill yourself tactics might have been a little more common. Have you noticed anything different? Yeah, yeah I definitely have noticed some things are changing, although, unfortunately, Sometimes things are changing more on the website or the things they say in the brochures, uh, but not like necessarily walking the talk as much. I think because we have to realize the people who are leading us in medical schools have been wounded by the same thing that they're passing down onto medical students now in real time. So it's kind of hard to just snap your fingers and make all the wounds go away. You know what I mean? So I know these people want to do a good job. Even these malicious people are saying terrible things. They somehow think scaring people into learning is the right way to run a medical school. But I do believe we just need modern teaching techniques that are not like uh, fear-driven and just niceness and love and support. And I think our teachers at medical school need mental health care for what they survived because they still have wounds from things that they witnessed. And I think if we could sort of all just get into a healing circle with each other or at least, um, you know, just start... I think sometimes what it is is the younger generation has to lead. They're the ones with the least wounds. I know this seems really odd, but to wait for your professors who are more wounded than you because they've been in this old medical system for so long uh, to help you, uh, it's, it sort of has to almost go in reverse. Like, let's welcome the medical students and do with medical students what I did with patients. Invite them to design their ideal medical school or ideal medical school experience because by nature, medical students are not slackers or they wouldn't have even been accepted to medical school. So why treat them like slackers and why treat them with such disdain? Like, why not put them in charge of redesigning the medical school so that it really works for the minds and hearts and souls of the new generation of doctors? And they could almost help the older doctors heal, maybe. I think what do you a, think? That's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to give the panelists a quick chance to chime in uh, if they had questions or comments. Yeah, I, um, I'm reminded, I think I read this on your website, something about um, wellness program programs and how um, uh, wellness programs plus something equals, and then it was fill in the blank. Do yeah, you wellness, remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, wellness programs plus rampant, well, plus human rights violations equal. <laughs> it was uh, a fill in, it was a word puzzle. <laughs> um, I guess just to point out that putting a meditation garden next to your hospital without changing the 28 plus hour shifts that people are working doesn't necessarily solve the problem that's causing um, the disillusionment and the, the damage to the human spirit on your medical school campus. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I just thought that was, uh, 
I don't know, is an interesting way to look at it because you have, yeah, it's just you can't solve this problem with just a couple meditation gardens, for example, <laughs> but um, more of the systemat systemic problems that we have in our right uh, it, yeah medical school <laughs> school yeah, the foundational elements that take these bright idealistic humanitarians and cause them to need i don't know a multiple choice test on empathy before they graduate to prove they have empathy like something went wrong <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean you're having to do a multiple choice test on empathy to like put the empathy back in them right before they get their diploma okay like they started out with great levels of empathy. why don't we create a situation where we um encourage that to blossom um yeah have have you incur have you encountered programs that have responded to this and made effective or practical changes in the training of medical students yet? Because because I mean your name is everywhere when it comes to this topic, so it's obvious that it's the information and the the concepts are out there. Have you yet encountered Pamela uh, programs that are starting to make proactive steps towards changing the tone of medical education? Yeah, or, or hospital corporations that have seen this and said, yeah, we don't want to kill our, our, our producers. We want to start working with them. Have you seen that and the pro describe yeah. them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having to do with hospital corporations, um, a hospital CEO like cold called me several years ago and wanted to recreate at a hospital level what I had done at the community level. So they brought me in on their executive team in Wisconsin. And for a year and a half, I worked with them on redesigning their hospital system so it was designed by the community and the patients they serve. Um, unfortunately, at the end, they had a change of the CEO who then didn't want to do it. Um, but however, I went to their community and I did like 13 town hall meetings in 48 hours, which just gave me more energy than ever because I'm at my best when I'm with large groups of people. But I collected uh, for them 2,830 pieces of qualitative data that they could, most of them, easily um, integrate into their hospital system and be better for it. And in fact, what was interesting is some of the people, I think their competitor hospital is like Mayo. And so some of, so there's like, it's a two hospital town, right? And so some of the people that came to the town hall, the community members said, I am so impressed that you have come here and to just listen to what we want that all my future visits will be at this hospital system because even if you don't do anything that we said, you cared enough to listen to us and that matters, you know? And so I think there's a huge power in just uh, engaging the end user in the system that they want to have for healthcare, for medical education. So that's with hospital systems. So I, I am optimistic that more and more hospital systems will catch on to the idea of really being community focused. And um, as far as residency programs, I mean, I have a friend that's in, um, oh, I think it's in Montana, a really amazing uh, residency program she absolutely loves. I mean, I, all, I loved my residency, by the way. I mean, I know you hear me talking a lot about sort of the doom and gloom of medical education, but I had an awesome experience myself in my residency because I picked the right residency that was really, uh, it was a family medicine residency. It was less procedural and more behavioral health focused. So I sort of feel like I got sort of like a psych family medicine background, do you know what I mean? And so I know there's awesome residencies out there that really go for go to that for the residents and make it human. And then they have like, you know, in my program, we had like outings to sweat lodges and they did all sorts of team building stuff so that we could really grow and love one another as colleagues. 
so that we would work better together in the hospital, you know, versus just being strangers there for a shift, right? Um, I think medical schools are doing this. Some medical schools are, you know, going to pass fail, so there's less pressure on the students. Many of them are hiring, you know, full-time psychiatrists or counselors. One thing I'll mention about that is that sometimes they'll ask me, well, we have this full-time, you know, therapist on site, but why aren't the medical students coming to see the therapist? Well, we come to find out that you've placed this therapist on like the fourth floor right next to the dean's office and their transcripts. And it's not really necessarily a safe place that medical students want to go to cry and have breakdowns <laughs> right next to their transcript. So I think, again, the solution is best if it comes from the medical students themselves, because if we as educators try to design something that's going to be what we think medical students want, I think we're not going to be sort of on target. You know, we'll have good intentions, but wouldn't it be better to just invite the medical students themselves to design their own wellness center, counseling program, meditation garden, uh, you know. Sweat lodge outing. There are wonderful things happening. I don't always know about them all, but yes. I had a question about those um, town hall meetings uh, that you've mentioned. What sorts of things do patients tell you uh, when when they're coming to you for their ideal care? Well, I, I categorized everything, and the number one thing that people wanted was um, was they wanted a, a humane sort of loving um, approach. That they wanted a human scale approach. So they, I don't. What they don't want is a cafeteria style waiting room and a huge parking garage and walking into a five story building. You know, and all they have is a hangnail or a strep throat. You know what I mean? That's a little bit off putting. And it's also like financially ridiculous to try to support a huge medical complex like that off of your hangnail or strep throat. Um, you know, reimbursement. So I think these need to happen like in the community, much like you know, my dad had his own little family practice office in the 1950s in a little neighborhood in Philadelphia. You know, where people can just come and and have like a simple one-on-one -on -one experience that doesn't require like 13 FTE staff per physician. You know what I mean? I do believe like. For tertiary care, of course you need like a big medical complex for a lung transplant and 13 FTE staff per physician and all that. But 99% of people in this country really just need to have one relationship with one physician or nurse practitioner or someone who they can trust in their neighborhood that's accessible to them. And we have lost our mentorship in this regard so that we're sort of just funneling everyone into these assembly line, huge corporate job comp big box clinics you know what i mean that's not what people want and the second thing they want is an integrative approach you know they they want like if you can't solve their migraines maybe you could recommend joe the acupuncturist down the street not, not just say i don't know what to do with you you know none of these meds work you know and get frustrated with the patient like give them some options that might be even outside of your skill set that you'll refer them to somebody who might be able to help them in a few visits with acupressure points or something um they want also, as simple as it sounds, just answers to their medical problems, you know? And when you think about it, 85% of all diagnoses can be made just by listening to the patient. So when we break down the physician-patient relationship and we end up all trapped in these seven-minute office visits, we're not providing quality health care. It's impossible. Like, there's just no way. Because you have to listen to the patient in order to solve their problem, you know? So... Right, absolutely. Um, what people want is basic. I uh, 
Yeah, I have uh, kind of some experience, I feel like, with those big box hospitals. Um, just the hospital in my hometown, I don't want to call out a hospital, but um, it's very much like an airport. And you have, like, you go sit in a waiting room and you get a pager. And then that pager tells you when you go to another room to wait to get another pager. <laughs> and it's like this long chain of events. And they have blue lighting everywhere to like calm you or something like that. But I um I wonder if like to me that is not ideal and uh I definitely respond to what you're saying that patients want. Um but for this hospital say that that is their solution for cutting costs. What um do you have any like response to that regarding financial um incentive to having better like smaller care. Okay, so how would this apply to larger hospital systems? Yeah. You know how to make it clean. Um, Again, just listen to what your community wants because one of the things that really surprised me that I thought was super awesome that this community said that they would do, you know, the hospital writes off a lot of their bills that patients who are poor can't pay, especially uninsured. Do you know how many people came up to me because I was talking to the Amish, by the way, in this community, and the Amish, they don't have insurance and they will not ever have insurance because it's against their religious philosophy to trust that an insurance company will help them somehow. It means they don't trust God or something. So the thing is, you have a lot of people that hospitals serve and they have to write off a lot of their bills. Well, these people at these town hall meetings said, I would work in the hospital volunteering in the kitchen. I would do anything to pay off my bill because this hospital saved my life. So why aren't they, you know, getting the goodwill of the community and encouraging people to like volunteer at the hospital to work off your bill, you know, not because you have to, but because you love the place that did your uh, coronary bypass and it saved your life and gave you 10 more years with your wife and your grandkids. Like, don't you have as a patient, like a level of love for a hospital and a physician that did that for you? Why tell them, oh no, since you're poor, we don't want anything from you. Just go home and whatever. You know what I mean? It makes you feel sort of devalued for what you can contribute to the hospital that you love. You know what I mean? So I think when uh, we have this sort of top-down hierarchy that does not empower patients, medical students, physicians, and try to tries to leave everyone in their little cubicle and they can only get out if the blue light shines blue at three. You know what I mean? That is just very dehumanizing and uh, mm. disconnecting. You know, because part of healing is connecting with your heart and soul and connecting with the heart and soul of other people around you. And if you leave everyone disconnected and disempowered, uh, that's definitely not healthcare in its true form. Yeah, well, Dr. Weibel, I really like what you're doing about listening to the community and kind of revamping the system from the ground up. Uh, it sounds like you were really received out in Wisconsin as well. Uh, what's what's the pushback look like, though? I mean, were you well received everywhere? Um. I mean, as far as I know, I'm pretty much well-received everywhere, uh, except that I was disinvited um, to the AMA. They had a special event um, October of 2015, where they had invited like three of the TED Med Talks uh, to come and preview their TED Med Talk for a special invitation-only evening with all the big wigs in the Chicago. Chicago healthcare scene and all the top tier AMA people. And I realized like while they were making my, and they picked me, you know, that was like a huge honor, me and like the guy that started the hospitalist movement and some other guy, I forget his name, that they picked the three of us to come. 
So I was really excited getting out my outfits, getting my, you know, like hotel set up with them. And then, um, and then I was disinvited all of a sudden when they realized that my TED Med talk was on physician suicide because they didn't quite realize what my topic was on based on my like bio on the TED Med site. Maybe they thought it was more on ideal clinics or something. I told them I, I was willing to talk about anything. I could certainly make my talk inspirational mm -hmm. and definitely, um, you know, do whatever they needed me to do. But apparently the rule was you had to deliver your same exact word by word TED Med talk. And so, yeah, they, they said they were uncomfortable with the topic of physician suicide and I wasn't invited anymore. So that was, that was interesting. This is, yeah, this is a really great discussion. I hate to break it up, but we're going to break off this segment of this episode and then we'll be back for the next segment for our continued discussion with Dr. Pamela Weibel. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this, uh, this half of the, um, the episode, Dr. Weibel. Yeah, thank you. And, and thank you to our panelists for joining us as well. Um, we'll see you guys for the next segment. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, and you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast.gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations.